Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, great day, Gadfly subscribers. It's Carlos. I hope everyone's having a fantastic day. Also, want to welcome those joining in on uh, Rogue News TV. We are doing this as a public live stream, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Paul of the Serious Report. Uh, please visit his work over at theseriousreport.com. And then also, when you get time, go check out our site, which is the the primary site is the Gadfly.bhx.tv where you can learn about our free 30-day subscription and then also do a monthly or a yearly plan with that. We also put out some public content on a couple different social media platforms. So you can also follow us over at Twitter, which is at the Gadfly MCN and also our Facebook page as well. Paul, always look forward to our conversations. How are you, how are you today, sir? Yes, I'm very well. How are you? Doing great, Paul. Doing great. I uh, want to welcome those tuning in on, on, the, on the live stream. And I always look forward to our Tuesday discussions, uh, you know, in regards to all events unfolding. I mean, it, it, we need to face facts. I, I think we're in entering that, that period of what the quickening that's occurring in regards to the multipolar world that's evolving, Paul. Yes, very much. And we, we've talked extensively about that for, well, for as long as I've known you. And, and I've talked about it. <laughs> quite a few years before that really the first time i started discussing that was probably around about 2012 something like that but i wanted to talk about some aspects of of how the financial system or the sort of dollar centric western financial system operates because the for me there is some big fundamental gaps in people's understanding and this has come about because you know the alt media fuels an idea and and then it sort of gravitates very quickly around a lot of alt media and then a lot of people start discussing it and it becomes an established fact and in fact it isn't necessarily an established fact and and quite often it's quite misleading and one aspect of that and we have talked about the ESF and the Exchange Stabilization Fund before, and its real significance. And it is far more significant than the Federal Reserve. And in fact, the Federal Reserve is nothing more than a conduit for the ESF. And anyone who doesn't know what the ESF is, well, it's actually an arm of the US Treasury, meaning the US government. So the US government's always controlled the Federal Reserve. And, and one small example that highlights this in People talk about the gold confiscation that happened in the early 30s in the United States and said, yes, but the Fed took all the gold. Yes, and then the Fed eventually had to give all the gold to the ESF. Then, and just at the point in time when the ESF came into existence, when all this happened, there's the biggest indication yet as to with regards to the significance of what the ESF is. And for me, it's... <laughs> It's really the, almost what I would term the dark heart of, of the Western financial system and, and all that that means. In essence, far more significant than Western central banks, far more significant than the so-called too-big-to-fail banks and the IMF and the World Bank, and you can name any other financial institution that you care to remember. That's how significant this is. And... You know, when we understand what the ESF does, then it changes our whole perspective on how the Western financial system operates. And it's rather like, you know, the idea, and I, I want to make this point because I still get people 
getting in touch going, no, but the, the, the central banks are controlled by the Rothschilds. And then they produce some point in history that's 150 years ago or 170 years ago and, see, and say, see, that proves the point. It doesn't prove the point. All it proves is that a, at a point in history, something happened, but things are constantly evolving. I mean, there's things that have happened in the last five or 10 years that if you'd said this 20 years ago, 30 years ago, no one would have believed you. The world's not this static entity where nothing changes. Uh, I mean, and to use a very crude analogy, it's a bit like saying, well, you know, Hitler came to power in Germany in the early 1930s and 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 therefore, by extension, Nazism. Well, therefore, Nazism would always survive in history. Well, clearly it hasn't in Germany. And I'm using that as an extreme example to highlight the fact that just because an entity may have had some degree of influence over central banks at one point in time doesn't mean that that applies anymore. And it most certainly doesn't apply now. Now, with regards to the ESF officially, its job is to defend the US dollar. Now, we've talked about what defending the US dollar means in a very broad sense. And defending the US dollar, you know, we've seen in history events such as the removal of Saddam Hussein, the removal of uh, Gaddafi, uh, regime changes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all in defense of the US dollar. Now, I'm not saying directly that the ESF is responsible in a direct sense for, for those things happening. But ultimately, that is, that, that's the sort of nexus point for all this. For example, it controls the New York Fed. It runs the CIA's black budgets. It's the architect of well, what we would refer to as the world's kind of monetary system, i.e. the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and the ESF financing is, is part of this, what you would people perceive to be like a gigantic propaganda network, which, you know, involves media and, and other ways of just ensuring that a particular message in whatever context that might be and in whatever situation is something that that gains traction in the world although of course increasing that's failing so there's an argument and quite legitimately that the esf has probably been involved in every major u.s scandal domestically and internationally since its inception in 1934. It effectively is what you might term the lender of the last resort or props up the entire Western financial system, and it's never more so since the 2008 financial crisis. Now, of course, on that basis, you think, well, therefore, it, it is kind of indestructible. It doesn't, it can't ever as some people might refer, refer to it as being defeated, or but it's actually destroying itself by virtue of a whole bunch of policy decision that it's been implementing for a considerably long time. Because if it's defending the dollar, we, we know full well what the fate of the dollar is and what has led to the fate of that dollar, not least QE zero interest rate policy, particularly since 2008. But... I'll come to some specific point which highlights why it is very vulnerable in, to the extent of what it is involved in. But I thought it's probably a good point just to park my, my thoughts there for a minute. And obviously, you can make some comments if you want, CJ. Yeah, Paul, I brought it up. I went to the U.S. Department of Treasury, and it, it lists the reports in terms of the ESF um, you know, obviously, don't it doesn't go through obviously the details, uh, but there's no doubt in terms of its use in, re, in exactly how you stated in, in regards to protecting dollar sovereignty. And it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's time where you take a look at the massive amount of money that's just been literally created uh, to support those things. And it literally uh, around the globe, it's failing. It's, it's, it's not succeeding, um, and it's it's uh, it's it's dated, Paul. It needs to change. Yeah, and 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 of course, it's very convenient for the ESF 
for everybody to believe that the Fed, the you know the the dark heart of the of the Western financial system, that that's where all the problems emanate from. Well, I'm not saying that the the Federal Reserve is whiter than white and it doesn't implement crazy policy decisions, but most of its policy decisions, if not all of them, are driven by the ESF, by the U.S. Treasury. But I want to put some a little bit of context and give an example of why. In and this happened sort of last year, which was quite interesting, because if you look at the role that the ESF plays in terms of LIBOR, it kind of provides some insight into just one of the activities they're involved in now. Obviously, there is foreign money and huge carry trades. Now, carry trade, just in case anyone doesn't know, is where an entity borrows money at a low interest rate in order to invest in another asset to provide a higher return. And that's obviously typically obviously in the foreign exchange markets. Now, obviously, last year, that started to become a problem. And this is the reason why. And it was for the ESF. In terms of the ESF, obviously, much of what you would term outstanding medium and long-term interest rate swaps held by large derivative houses effectively has the ESF as what you might term the receiver of fixed rates on a non-spread basis, which effectively means the ESF is paying to parties a three-month LIBOR in exchange for fixed rate payments. Now, that becomes a serious problem for the ESF when the three-month LIBOR exceeds the three- and five-year bond rates, and that happened last year. The reason that's a problem is it would put the ESF in this position of, of, of having a negative carry on what could arguably, and I think is hundreds of trillions of swaps. So there's one example where market forces can operate in such a way that they then start to have a major problem. Now, obviously, the three- and five-year bond rates now exceed the three-month LIBOR. The other question is with regards to the ESF, and we've talked, uh, or Mark Skidmore's talked about the missing $21 trillion, which I think he's now saying is nearly $100 trillion. And from my pers uh, perspective, I would suspect there's probably $200 trillion missing. But obviously, for me, the ESF has clearly siphoned off or siloed enormous tens of trillions of dollars or more. Um, and, and, and because obviously there needs to be a slush fund because, you know, we've got all these enormous U.S. government debts. Uh, you've got enormous volumes of foreign dumping of U.S. treasuries. There's the ongoing suspicion of constantly propping up failed uh, banks and not just what we saw in 2008 and and therefore the argument is okay to what extent does this and how much of this enormous slush funds left and how easy is it now given of course increasingly foreign nations are dumping enormous amounts of treasuries i mean people look at the tick report and say oh no but china's got this many treasuries or well, as I said only recently, and I'll make the point again, the Cayman Islands as a government doesn't have $220 billion of U.S. treasuries. Treasuries are all put there. Now, we, we can't ascertain who precisely has put them there, but maybe it's hedge funds who were given money to buy U.S. treasuries to, to hide them or silo them away in the Cayman Islands. Does the U.K. have $400 billion, the government of U.S. treasuries? No. I mean, you see other nations who are crippled financially but have enormous uh, U.S. Treasury holding, and it's very clear they don't have that many U.S. Treasuries. So the Tick report is a complete work of fiction. What we also know is that the SF is involved in all sort of markets of suppressing things or pumping things up. So, I mean, they've certainly suppressed the VIX by selling VIX options. So the... Obviously, all this does is fuel the whole thing where we know that the equity and debt markets are enormous bubbles. And the question people always say is, okay, what point is, are those bubbles going to burst? Well, there comes a moment when collectively the world's going to say, you know, and because we know that no one, no foreign entities are really buying U.S. government debt. 
because and obviously effectively everyone goes well the fed's buying all the data well effectively it's the esf getting the fed to buy all the data and there's going to come a moment when the world will realize in totality that it's being completely duped by the exchange stabilization fund now What's very clear is, from my perspective, is in terms of the ESF and their operations, not many people, certainly in the alt media, know anything about it or even understand or have even heard of it. And there will ultimately have come a point in time where it doesn't matter what the ESF does, it can, because we're reaching that point, you can print trillions of dollars, it's going to have no economic benefit. And for every dollar you print, what's the return you're going to get on that dollar? Five cents? if that. So the point comes when the US dollar will be in free fall precisely because the US dollar will become persona non grata in terms of global trade. And then the question, therefore, in that regard is at that point, whatever dollars the ESF has got, uh, they're going to have to get rid of them somehow because they're going to realize that dollars are worthless in international trade. And that really will be the signal at the end of what I think is the greatest delusion in financial history, and that's the U.S. petrodollar. So it's always the question of when does something happen? And we never deal with when. We just have to track developments and see, you know, what's actually happening uh, with regards to to a sort of global position in terms of de-dollarization. And people will continue to say, there isn't much de-dollarization. And they'll pre present statistical data. And my argument's always been, you really trust this statistical data? Because there is no foreign appetite to buy U.S. treasuries. Uh, the dumping of U.S. treasuries continues in earnest. The other problem you have, is, which is far worse than 2008, is we know U.S. equities, is the problem is exacerbated because stock markets are enormously more leveraged than they were in 2008. So when you factor in all the economic indicators we've talked before, talked about before, and central bank intervention by the ESF, which has been particularly prevalent since 2008, it become it's obvious that this is going. Whatever happened in 2008 is going to be a drop in the ocean compared to what's going to happen going forward. Now we can't predict with any accuracy what precisely is going to happen. Because there, there's there's a number of potential um, options. I mean, you could have where they do they allow the stock market to blow up? Do they allow interest rates to rise through the roof, which causes enormous problems trying to manage the debt burden, and in the process crash all uh, the entire stock market? Or do they keep suppressing uh, interest rates and allow the bubble stock market bubble to grow and grow and grow and and in the process just create more and more inflation because obviously the money's now not staying siloed inside Wall Street banks but it's ending up obviously in Main Street. With regards to gold, we often get people saying, "Well, I, I just don't understand. You know what? What? You know why is gold the way it is? Why is gold the price it is?" apart from the obvious manipulation, but there's some interesting historical context. Because it, and this was, for me, was an interesting development in 2011, because around the summer of, it's almost getting on for a decade ago, during what was the EU sovereign debt crisis, moves were made at that point to ensure that gold didn't threaten this, what I call, you know, this Ponzi uh, credit and debt system. So they drove the price of gold down. It, at that point, it was a high of 1920 And then it got down to its 2015 low of $1,100. Okay, we subsequently saw it get over $2,000 last year, and there's been a huge attempt to suppress the price again, but they have, there is the degree of success has been any, anything but what they managed to achieve in 2011. As we said, it got down to $1,100. It's currently, I think, around 1780 The other problem you have is central banks are far weaker now than they've ever been due to their costly and endless efforts to rescue this credit debit Ponzi scheme from lower demand and even lower growth. And as we said, they'll do everything to prevent rising interest rates because it threatens the foundation of this completely fraudulent economic system on a whole different level. 
The world's central banks, of course, own record amounts of government debt. Now, the value of that debt, if it was marked to market, now that means effectively marked to market is to provide a sort of understanding of, and you can apply it at an institutional level to the current financial system based on current market conditions. That's in a very simple term. Well, it, if you take the value of the debt, if it's marked to market, it's significantly lower than what's nominally priced. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, the nominal price of something is its value in terms of dollars. Now, if interest rates rise, and this is their big dilemma, effectively, central banks' balance sheet will be wiped out, resulting, notionally speaking, in the bankruptcy of central banks themselves. The other problem they have is if you have rising interest rates, you'll just get this multi-trillion dollar sell-off in global stock markets, as well as trillion dollar routes in bond markets. And it's precisely why the ESF has propped stock markets up and bond markets for that meltdown happening. Uh, particularly, I would say, more so in the last five years than even between 2008, 2000, say 15, 16. But this whole credit debit sort of financial system is coming to an end uh, there is no absolutely no doubt that uh, this battle between what you might call capital and free markets is, is going to end and at some point of course it's all going to blow up in one way shape or form so as much as we point out what the ESF has done for you know for its whole inception to varying degrees but particularly in terms of trying to manage the, the financial system since 2008. It is a law of diminishing returns. It's getting weaker and weaker in the process. And one of the things that highlighted an enormous amounts of problems uh, for the ESF was the fact that this missing 21 trillion, which is now probably a missing 100 trillion, which might be significantly greater, that clearly was was went uh, didn't go unnoticed by nations around the world who started then to go hang on not only have we got a problem but we're now starting to have to account for a problem that could be infinitely worse because clearly huge amounts of money is being printed and is unaccounted for and that of course by extension causes enormous amounts of concern in terms of the the dollar itself it is part of the reason not entirely why there's been enormous dollar or U.S. Treasury dumping, why nations won't buy U.S. Treasuries, why nations, apart from the weaponization of the dollar, want to trade in bilateral currencies. And, and these are all symptoms of, a, of this far broader problem. But it's not historically that you could argue the ESF could do pretty much what it wanted but there was always kind of a tipping point, and 2008 was that tipping point when effectively the Western financial system was over. All it's done since then is kept, keep trying to keep it resuscitated to the point that really the pandemic was the final nail in the coffin lid. And why I keep saying when people say the pandemic's this big planned um, event, to crash everything and destroy everything. And it absolutely couldn't be further from the truth because you wouldn't have gone to all the efforts since 2008 to prevent a collapse, only to then suddenly decide in 2020 that you want to now crash and collapse everything. The reason they don't want to uh, crash and collapse everything is because, as I've said, once the Western financial system is dead, it's dead. You can't resuscitate it. It all depended on the world agreeing to, to obviously buy U.S. Treasuries, give the United States free dollars, and through coercion or just cooperation or, or vassal status or whatever it was. It all depended on that. And the reason it's now really collapsing in earnest is because the world's rejecting the dollar. So if the world's rejecting the dollar, you can't somehow convince everyone that when it's collapsed, oh, by the way, we've got a new dollar and you all go to, to buy into to the same nonsense that you, you finally realized was nonsense and was a complete Ponzi scheme, effectively in very crude terms. That nations are not going to buy it, and that's precisely why they, the U.S. wants to challenge the multipolar world and doesn't want to see the ascendancy of 
of this new reality because it completely challenges everything the Western financial system stands for. And 2020 was a huge turning point, as you said, because suddenly the problem became an, an economic problem, not a financial problem. So it wasn't contained in this bubble in Wall Street and, uh, and banks, etc. It became a problem where they had to bail the real economy. They had to pump trillions of dollars not to create economic growth, just to prevent economic collapse, which is why the UK is a good example. They oh, will we'll have furlough for a period of time, and then they just keep extending furlough all the time because they know full well if they don't, what, 5, 10, 15 million people will suddenly not have a job. And that will cause enormous problems, uh, not least in the fact of how, you know, what, what's the fate of these people who, you know, who have suddenly, you know, lose their jobs in, to that extent. There isn't going to be any jobs for them. So it's an entirely different problem managing a bubble and thinking you can normalize it since 2008. When it blows up and ends up in Main Street, you've got an entirely different problem. And here's the other thing. If they just wanted to collapse everything and reduce us all to serfs, they wouldn't be doing all this uh, bailing everybody out and giving people enormous uh, you know, um, jobless benefits or you know, furloughing people and doing everything to try and make sure the masses don't collapse. Because they know full well if, if that happens, they have a problem that is completely unmanageable because, again, you can't determine what 300 million Americans are going to do or 65 million UK residents or whoever or whatever nation it might be. So it's an important thing to mention why so much of people's perspective on how the financial system operates is incorrect. They have a lot of assertions and assumptions that have just become an established fact when they're not an established fact. And, you know, it's like I always say when people say shut down the Federal Reserve. If you shut down the Federal Reserve, well, you're, you, you might as well, the entire Western financial system would collapse. And if you want that to happen, you need to accept the consequences of what that would do for you as an individual, because whatever financial assets you had would just disappear and you'll lose everything. Okay, there's an argument. You but you know, you can invest in other things like gold, silver if you want, or whatever it might be and that but that's an entirely different uh, situation. Be careful what you wish for and be careful that for all the faults we can we can levy at the Federal Reserve, there are important critical functions that if they don't fulfill those critical functions would create a enormous destabilizing effect that we can't understand the consequences and the outcome of, and we should be extremely careful wishing for things to happen when we don't understand the consequences and the fallout of that. There is a risk, of course, that someday that could literally happen, but hopefully we don't get to the point where things are that bad and someone at some point will realize there has to be an I use it in the looser sense of the word, a kind of Bretton Woods kind of thing, where it's not Bretton Woods, but you just get a group of, of principal nations who have to sit there and go, okay, we've got an enormous problem. What are we going to do with it? And how are we going to deal with this? doesn't mean it will happen, but it should happen. But as I always say, there are critical functions that exist inside uh, central banks. There's critical functions that exist inside banks themselves, and they have to continue. If they don't, you have catastrophic problems. And I know how how payments and 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 critical functions exist in banks because that I had direct exposure to that, and it is absolutely critical. That doesn't just collapse in in the blink of an eye. So we need to understand better how the system operates, and. I'm, I'm not a supporter of it in any way, shape, or form, and I've made that very clear for a very, very long time. But equally, we have to be extremely careful that we don't wish for things to happen that could have huge blowback for all of us on an individual basis because as soon as you introduce chaos into, into Western societies, you don't know what the fallout's going to be. We're not used to dealing with chaos, we're not used to dealing with extreme adversity, and therefore we can't quantify 
how people will react to that. And there could be people who react very badly to that. That might affect us on an individual or collective basis. Yeah, very well said, Paul. Paul, as we uh, pivot and we start to uh, think about uh, some of the indicators uh, and some of the changes that are occurring in terms of uh, what other countries are doing to 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 change outside of 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 the dollar, uh, we're starting to witness a, quite a bit of of, of recent developments uh, in 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 particular with Russia and China. Yes, hugely. So, and we can we can go back and and sort of provide a little bit of context that this these developments have been going on for a number of years. One of the, the principal things that was a driver for this. Uh, was uh, ironically the the Ukraine made down. We've said this before. Where suddenly, not just Russia, who felt threatened that the US might try and exclude them from SWIFT, but obviously talk action to try and you know implement sanctions um, to cripple the nation and and obviously drive it into a war that never happened. This not only alerted uh, Russia to the problem, but also China and many other nations and. As we said before, it's no surprise that literally within months of, of uh, the, 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 the obviously when the Maidan happened in 2014, China and Russia signed this enormous energy deal in non-dollar terms. But in terms of developments, I mean, obviously we spoke before about the digital yuan, which is in development, which effectively is a way to internationalize the yuan. You can put hubs in every country in the or you might have certain hubs in Europe, or you might put a hub in, in, in the Middle East somewhere, and it will, can be very easily become a method for international payment, which would cause enormous damage to the dollar and extremely quickly once it's implemented. Now, people keep talking, well, the dollar's got decades to, to survive. Well, no, it hasn't got decades. And you know, certain moves could be made which would massively accelerate its demise. But... What perhaps a lot of people aren't realize, don't realize is that um, China has, I think, now over 30 clear, RMB clearing banks established globally. Even as uh, two years ago, and it certainly increased then, the, the Chinese effectively interbank payment system, the SIPs, now covers well over 160 countries and regions it has dozens of direct participants and at least a thousand indirect participants so we can consider obviously this is the ongoing deepening of the rmb internationalization and obviously the rmb cross-border payment system will become a global trading system in the future what's also worth noting in this regard is that the bank of russia of course joined China's SIPs. The Eurasian Economic Union is obviously developing a, a payment system that bypasses dollar settlement. Even the BRICS countries, which is obviously Russia, India, Brazil, uh, China and South Africa, have created a unified payment system, that's BRICS Pay, that bypasses US banks. And in conjunction with the BRICS payment system, the transaction parties can make payments in any BRICS member countries through mobile applications. So this is all reducing the dependence on SWIFT, which of course is dominated by the US and the, dollar, and the US dollar, even though it resides in Belgium. What's also worth noting is BRICS countries have established a unified physical gold trading system, and that's designed to break the market in which gold is priced in dollar terms. Countries have also been switched to using dollar alternatives, non-US dollar currencies, such as even the euro and the renminbi. Um, and what we're most certainly seeing is a dollar share of global central banks' official foreign reserves are gradually declining. That is, that's a statement of fact. Um, and these are just some of the obvious initial developments that we've seen. And you know, countless nations are now joined, are now like the ASEAN nations and the RCEP. They increasingly want to change their trade from dollar terms into local currencies. And of course, you can't phase that out immediately. It takes, you know, a significant proportion of time. 
But I think what's also worth noting is after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the PBOC, when the People's Bank of China started to seriously reevaluate not only its dollar, you know, U.S. Treasuries holdings and and dollar denominated whole uh, you know, forex reserve, sorry, dollar forex reserves, because as we said, it was always there. Where there was this mutual relationship where. China took the treasuries and gave the U.S. dollars. And when the U.S. started printing dollars, the Chinese went, hang on, you've broken this agreement between us and, uh, and therefore we're not particularly happy, so we're going to have to reevaluate our position. And as we said, if you also if you want to extend the relationship between China and Russia, you've got significant amounts of Russian banks that are connected to China, China 6. Chinese banks have also joined their own financial payment system. That's the that's basically it's the Russian financial information transmission system. That's the SPFS. And in 2015, of course, China's that's when the SIPS went live, which was its own international payment system. And and of course, increasingly, uh, the trade which has grown enormously between Russia and China is is uh, in non-dollar terms so what advantages does obviously sips have for china because we we talk about this well you can use rmb for direct settlement you don't need to open agency bank accounts and you can obviously reduce transfer fees we know europe created instax it didn't particularly use it but it's it's a an option that I think increasingly will use going forward, and that's an independent payment system, which also means it can bypass SWIFT and in principle was set up to handle the fallout of Iran and, and the US walking away from the, the JCPOA. So creating cross-border payment systems or your own uh, is an obviously a more convenient payment channel and, uh, and it's free from US interference. They have no visibility of it. So, as we said, the SPFS was established by the Russian Central Bank because they genuinely believe that the Russian financial system, Russian banks, will be cut off from SWIFT. So, the US caused all these problems, and it caused this huge acceleration of nations looking for alternative mechanisms to trading on dollar terms. And, and what's also worth noting is a lot of time data is produced about, well, the uptake of the yuan is 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 significantly smaller, and they people produce you know IMF data, etc. But it doesn't account for trade that goes through SIPs. It doesn't take into consideration any of these clearinghouses that exist, uh, uh, as we just said, which I think is now in excess of thirty. And also, you know, it doesn't take into account the amount of trade that is conducted. Bearing in mind, if you've got SIPs covering hundred sixty plus countries and regions, then therefore the internationalization of the RMB is significantly greater than perceived wisdom. I'm not saying at this point it's challenging that the, the, the dollar or the dollar is getting weaker, ironically, to some extent, uh, at the well, well, as a result of more uptake in the euro. But that's come about in part because Rosneft is an example where it stopped trading uh, in dollar terms and uh, said to the Europeans, well, if we're going to trade in energy, we're, we'll trade in the euro with you. So it is a, a an established model. It is growing and expanding. And nations are now clearly starting to see the advantages that, you know, when Russia effectively has weaned itself off dollars, it's effectively dumped all its US treasury. I think it's probably got three billion left, which is just nothing. Uh, and and I've seen what it's done for itself economically because it's now effectively less and less reliant on a dollar-based uh, system. They're going, hang on, we can benefit enormously as a result of this. And there is going a cascading effect. And when people say, well, the world's not de-dollarizing, my argument to them is, well, explain to me then why the Fed just has to keep printing trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's because... The rest of the world won't buy U.S. treasuries. Therefore, by extension, it doesn't want anything to do with the U.S. treasury, U.S. dollar complex. So that's as big an indication of the world de-dollarizing as you're ever going to see.
Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's interesting, Paul. Uh, just in terms of, of of monitoring it and seeing the transition that's occurring, not only uh, first and foremost in energy um, that we're witnessing in the Middle East, where they're you know brokering a lot of deals outside of the petrodollar. You know, you're following that up with a massive change in payment systems away from SWIFT. And then the final conclusion of that is looking at some sovereign uh, digital uh, type currencies uh, for, for, for domestic uh, trade and, and, and payments. So I think the, the writing is pretty much uh, on the wall. Um, I've, I've heard the same theory that, that, you know, people argue that the dollar can go another 50, another 100 years. Um, you know, however, you know, you can just look at throughout history in terms of reserve currency status. And I think the dollar has, I think, exceeded that uh, in the number of years by at least 10 to 15. And it's, it's just, it's just not uh, possible, Paul. It's, it's, you know, part of history. There's cycles uh, that occur and we're, we're experiencing one of those cycles currently. Yeah. And, and let's, let's just put this in some context again. It was slightly repeating ourselves, but I think it's worth pointing this out. You know, if there's no foreign, effectively no foreign buyers of, of, of treasuries, the Fed becomes the sole buyer. We can't, no one can deny that budget deficits are continuing to balloon in the US. It happened during the Trump administration, and it certainly wasn't going to stop during the Biden administration. So that, it, they continue to increase. So there's a need for additional US treasuries, which obviously, you know, foreign entities are not going to provide. Unfunded liabilities are continuing to grow. I think we're going to start to see some of them appear on, on the Fed balance sheet. So what's the implications of all this? Uh, well, effectively, as we said, foreign central banks stopped increasing U.S. Treasury exposure back in 2014-15. So a lot of the buying that, or, or setting aside the fact that, obviously, the Fed is printing enormous amounts of, of uh, treasuries now is the the buying that used to happen was from foreign private investors you used to get of mutual funds pension funds insurance company hedge funds and believe it or not even individuals and because they used to get what they thought was an attractive yield well those attractive yields are starting to become an awful lot less attractive and they're more now attracted to to buying things like the yuan as an example now, the argument's always been is how much of the dollar dumping, which is clearly going on, well, are those entities were, you know, selling U.S. treasuries, therefore they'll sell them and then demand, you know, U.S. dollars as a first you know, incremental step. But then the question is, then what happens if they then move to other currencies as a second step? Well, banks would quickly are going to run out of U.S. dollar liquidity. They wouldn't be able to support the selling of U.S. treasuries. That, in principle, leads to a drop in prices and a sharp rise in yields, and which would, of course, if that happened, be catastrophic for U.S. debt and equity markets. So there is a problem where they're going to have to step in and go, well, do we allow catastrophic problems for the U.S. debt markets or equity markets? Or uh, if you can't support the selling of them, then, then, then the Fed's going to have to step in. And and I'm sure that that is allowed to continue. And another reality that obviously is a problem for the Fed is the fact that foreign private investors, because they seek a yield and they'll hold U.S. Treasuries, they'll do that until until they yield higher uh, uh, than domestic debt, and if the U.S. dollar remains strong, but if yields become un unattractive, or even if it's a perception the U.S. dollar weakens, as we said. They'll seek investments elsewhere because they don't want to take capital losses that could come about from rising yields or U.S. dollar devaluation. So the Fed, the U.S. government, meaning the Treasury, meaning the ESF, are now stuck between this rock and a hard place due to the structure of the U.S. dollar system. As we said, they can't lower rates, nor can they weaken the currency because of all the consequences we've discussed and I've, I've I think, mentioned them in other contexts for six, seven, eight years. The other problem is, as the U.S. economy grows slows, and in reality it is, trade slows, and private foreign investors therefore have less to recycle. And on the other hand, you've got rising deficits. 
interest payments and unfunded liabilities. All are increasing the supply of U.S. treasuries and they'll weaken the U.S. dollar, which is utterly unsustainable. The Fed also, as we said, they can't lower interest rates. Uh, they and if they and the idea you can implement QE to boost economic growth is simply just not a reality anymore. So, even if they had foreign investors willing to to do so, they're not willing to do so because they don't want to take losses on U.S. Treasury holdings. But in a, in effect, we've now reached the point where you can print as much QE as you want. It's never going to stimulate economic growth. What's worth noting in the past, losses were actually always taken by foreign central banks. That effectively was the, the, the true definition of exorbitant privilege that was enjoyed by the US and the US dollar. The big turning point since 2014, central banks said, we're not going to do that anymore. But the, And there's also another argument, I think, once in my mind, that with regards to revaluation of gold. Now, I'm not going to give a price, but the reason is that if the Fed was forced in inverted commas to revalue gold to whatever price, then it's irrelevant. But, you know, let's say significantly north. And when I say significantly, it doesn't mean 500% high, just, just significantly north. They'd effectively see control of the US dollar as, as a, a global reserve asset. It would destroy the U.S. shadow banking system, we will blow up the euro-dollar LIBOR market, and it would be the end of what you might term the petrodollar. The thing is, revaluating gold's always been an option for the Fed, but it comes with an enormous loss of power, and by extension, of course, when we said Fed, we said the ESF. They're never going to do it willingly, but there will come a point when they'll ultimately be forced to do so because it'd be the only option left. At the end of the day, now there's the issue. The U.S. doesn't have any gold, and, and, and but that's a whole separate subject. And we get into that, we'll be here for, for an hour or two. <laughs> but what's worth saying is, and people say to me, why doesn't China and Russia stick it and, and just de destroy the dollar? Come out and say, we've got, you know, 40,000 tons of gold each, we're, and we're going to launch a crypto ruble and a crypto, uh, no, sorry, a gold back ruble and a uh, gold-backed yuan. Yes, they will have crypto rubles and crypto yuan, but they are digital uh, ruble and digital yuan. But they don't want to be seen to destroy the dollar uh, because in let, leave the Fed, leave the ESF, leave them to make the policy decisions uh, to destroy the dollar. And don't get in the way of it. Don't be seen to be the catalyst because then you can be um, the, the, the person who, who, or the entity that they'd love to be able to blame and accuse China of crashing the, the Western financial system. I do still think that there's enough scope that they'd even launch a fake cyber attack on the Western financial system and then blame China, Russia, and Iran, or all of them, or two of them, or one of them. I think that remains a serious problem. And Ironically, of course, they, they can rightly say, well, Russia particularly, you wanted to sanction us into oblivion. So you encourage us. In fact, we had no choice. We had to de-dollarize. Uh, so, and by extension, if we de-dollarize, then you know, our other trading partners will de-dollarize. And increasingly, of course, that's what China and Russia are doing. Russia does with the EAE, the e Eurasian Economic Union, the EAEU. They've done that also, and not exclusive, but also with other nations and finding ways to bypass the dollar. And of course, you know, they, you know, US uh, foreign policy and their obsession and almost like sort of desire to, to, to have be what I've termed uh, sanctioned junkies. Mm. They've, they've, they've opened themselves up to their own problems. And that's one thing where China and Russia can make the necessary steps and and people can't say, well, uh, you, there was no justification for that. I mean, it, it's quite interesting. You've never heard the the the, um, the, the Americans criticise the Russians and the Chinese for de-dollarising for two reasons. They don't want people to know de-dollarisation is going on because that yeah, weakens confidence in the dollar, but also because 
then nations could quite rightly turn around like Russia and say, well, you course, you've tried to sanction us, you've tried to cause us economic damage, you've tried to cause us financial damage and destabilize our nations. And China is mindful equally of the problems it has. And that was accelerated through the trade war with, with Trump and, and how Chinese-US relations have been going downhill for the last three years or more. And that all, of course, principally started during the Trump administration. And in the process, of course, the Fed and U.S. Uh, government policy, U.S. Treasury policy, ESF policies, destroying the dollar, as was very predictable many years ago. So they're, they're causing their own demise. And this is why often people will say, well, uh, why, why is there so much manipulation in the price of gold? Well, and so, well, as, as I've said, I've made this point. There's this kind of strange irony to the fact that if gold's at $1,700, then a lot of institutional interest would be pretty muted. I mean, it, when it got over $2,000 last year, briefly, uh, then there was enormous amounts of interest suddenly from institutional investors. But if, for argument's sake, you revalue gold, and I've said this like $2,500 an ounce, $3,000 an ounce, that would be a major catalytic event, which would see control of the US dollar as a global reserve currency, would destroy the US shadow banking system, the euro dollar LIBOR market, etc. Et that, so that's why there is an enormous desire to, and it's one of pre preserving the dollar because it's a matter of national security to do everything to try and suppress gold and, by extension, silver price. And that's why I've always said you won't see the price shift significantly or in a sustainable way until the paper markets are broken. And the paper markets can only be broken when there is so much physical demand that it's impossible to manage the physical demand that's wrapped around the paper markets because there's people who would logically think they own gold, but they don't. There are people who would seek demand for delivery in those situations, which would cause the COMEX and the LBMA enormous headaches. And we've seen clear evidence of that last year to some degree, not, not to the point of capitulation, but certainly caused them enormous headaches. But if you revalue gold, the flight out of, out of dollar, the dollar denominated assets into gold would be enormous and that would kill and break the the the, the dollar you know uh, u.s treasury uh financial system effectively that that would be the killer moment for it and and hence why they will do everything to prevent that but at some point they won't be able to prevent it anymore and it does come down to the fact that you will eventually, the, the iron grip on controlling the paper markets becomes weaker and weaker because, by extension, more and more people are buying. And, and, and there's been a big move in silver, okay, as yet it hasn't materialized. But every ounce of physical silver that's bought, uh, bought by someone and, and held is another nail in the coffin lid of paper silver market. It's, But obviously, it's a cumulative effect. It, and at some point, there's going to be an enormous driver that will make people and institutions, particularly, they won't buy silver. The industrial demand for silver is enormous, which is why China continues to import enormous quantities on on a month by month basis and to record only 170 odd tons. That's officially through Chinese customs. They also import a lot of silver that goes through strategic reserves that no one records those figures no there's no reference to them anywhere they're you know, strategic reserves which are which are a matter of their national security and nobody except a very few people have any understanding and that's where their gold sits also so the idea well they haven't got they've only got two thousand tons of course is nonsense never mind for the reasons we've stated before just alone in terms of domestic production but this is why there's a big push to try and suppress the price of gold and silver and why I made the point back in 2011 when gold rose to 1920 on the back of obviously the sovereign debt crisis in Europe 
that they then had to do everything to try and smash that gold price and, and keep it down because there was no way they could allow that to get out of hand and out of control at that point in time, precisely for the reasons why I've just said if it carried on, you'd have then seen an enormous move out of out of uh, the dollar into to, to gold because by extension it would have just carried on and on. And the thing, if the sovereign debt crisis had got out of hand in Europe eventually because of how the entire Western financial system lassoed together, it would have become a systemic problem. And again, once gold, if gold had carried on and reached two and a half, three thousand dollars an ounce, for argument's sake, things would have blown up in 2011-12. And of course, that couldn't be allowed to happen. So it's all perception. The paper price is the perception that that nobody really should worry about owning gold. The dollar's perfectly safe. You know, it's 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 a viable currency. There isn't any problems with it because it's all perception management. And as soon as that perception dies and people no longer trust or have confidence in it, then it's the end of the dollar-centric empire and, and the ability to defend it at all costs will be insurmountable and it will be the end of it. Yeah. Very well said, Paul. Paul, thank you for an absolute great discussion today. I know I truly enjoyed it, as well as the uh, Gadfly subscribers, and then also those tuning in on the uh, public uh, live stream. Uh, Paul, any other thoughts before we wrap up this uh, this session? Well, I think we've probably, probably said enough for today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it, look, it's like everything. The, 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 this was always going to happen at some point. I mean, you know, 2008 was just, a, was well, for me, 2006, when I sat there in my professional capacity and went, this is over. This is all going to blow up. The only question at that point, from my perspective, is what are they going to do? And as I've said before, I wrote to the UK government. I actually wrote to, to the US government at the time and said, this is, this is, this is a baked-in-the-cake certainty. Whatever you do, do not resort to QE and zero interest rate policy. You need to resort to dealing with the problems inside the banking system. It's going to be painful, difficult, but you need to accept certain banks will have to fold and collapse, and that's the end of it. Well, okay, they didn't probably didn't even read it. Probably it probably got thrown in the bin before anyone read it. But the point is, for me, it was very obvious it failed. The question post two thousand and eight was. How long can they keep this insanity going? Well, they kept it going longer than I expected, only for one reason, because when we found out there was a missing 21 trillion and more, then the answer was very clear. There was an enormous amount of siloed printed dollars that no one had any visibility of that have been propping everything up and has done ever since. And that's the only reason why it didn't collapse. But the fundamental principle is that is only sustainable in inverted commas, and I use that in the loosest sense of the word, whilst that the world still embraced the dollar, while the world was still saying, yeah, we'll take US treasuries and give you a bunch of free dollars and you, you, know, you can buy our stuff or whatever you want to do. Blow the world up or threaten, the, you know, threaten to uh, overthrow governments, etc. But once the world rejected that, then... Their ability to, to control this, even if they can just keep printing unsustainable amounts of money, would, would reach a breaking point. And we're now kind of at the breaking point. And 2020 was a big telling moment in what is now causing even more significant breakdown because it's become an economic and financial problem. And the, and the other point worth making is look at 2008 and why it's significantly worse is at that point, it was a liquidity problem in the banking system, effectively. Now it's become an everything problem. They've created all these bubbles. That's a problem. We have huge economic problems. It's unsustainable. It's destroyed the dollar to the, to the point of oblivion. Yep. And these, so they've just magnified all the problems they had and introduced a whole bunch of other problems. And that's and, and made things infinitely worse than they were in 2008. And, uh, and I think that's a good point to stop because that just gives a, a very sort of very brief couple of minutes snapshot of what's happened in the last, what, 12, 13, 14 years. 
Yes, yes. Paul, thank you once again, and look forward to our next week conversation. And again, thank you for thank you to our Gadfly subscribers. Uh, for those tuning in, visit our work over at the gadfly.vhx.tv. Uh, don't forget to also uh, follow us over on our Twitter handle, which is at the Gadfly VHC, or I'm sorry, MCN. Paul, and then also visit Paul's work and support Paul over at theseriousreport.com and his premium content, which are his daily podcasts, which I truly enjoy. Paul, until next week, and enjoy your day. Yes, and likewise, and obviously to everyone listening too.